the love of God and our our the, the gravity that he has on our souls is gonna be outside of our understanding, but then we get to just rest in the knowledge that it is true and that we just, as part of ourselves, kind of are gonna gravitate towards his death and his resurrection. Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus, as every other week we walk through a few passages in light of the gospel before looking at a, but what about, part of the Bible that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. We are back from a brief hiatus. Thank you to my second daughter coming a whole month early for a paternity leave from the Red Tree Pod. A little unexpected, but we're happy that she's doing well, and I'm happy to be seeing you two on my screen and hearing you through my headphones. How are things since I saw you last and knew what sleep was? Chris, we'll uh, yeah. start you, with you. you. you What's <laughs> Well, congratulations, brother, on, thank on you, thank you. daughter number two. Happy for you. Yeah. Um, but yes, good to be back. Good to see you guys as well. I had a birthday too, actually, not too far from your second born, I guess. So, um, and I, my wife got me bourbon coffee this year, bourbon coffee beans. So we've been kind of a big bag, been kind of living off that now for, for a couple of weeks. And um, it's did you quite cry good. As much it's, as my daughter did on her birthday. Uh, maybe just month. under, just okay. under, yeah, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> maybe comparable. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Urban coffee. Wow. Yeah. yeah what, so what is that? What is, I honestly coffee? don't, I think that there's no alcohol in it. I think <laughs> that they just put like the green, the green coffee beans in like a spent whiskey barrel or something to let it just sit there for a bit. And then they roast them later. You know, mm. I think that's the whole thing. So there's a little bit of a hint of, of yeah. Uh, bourbon in it. So, um, yeah, it's quite good. So it's kind of a nice surprise and a and treat. And I, I didn't know it existed really until oh. recently. So kind of, so a, if we hear you slur your words today, we'll know why. <laughs> yeah. Well, I coffee may or may not have some right here next <laughs> time. And another thing. <laughs> <laughs> if I get a little bit loud and interrupting, or just stop talking. Yeah. <laughs> all together. Yep. Just be very agreeable and a little bit sleepy. Um, but, uh, yeah, this so. episode of red tree prod brought to you by drunken rants, <laughs> you bourbon coffee, bourbon coffee <laughs> everywhere is sponsoring this, this thing. But, um, anyway, Laura, how are, how are you doing? Um, I'm days? doing really well. And I do want to say that your wife is much nicer than I am. Um, I got my husband coffee as well for his birthday early on in our marriage, but it was the coffee I don't, I don't remember the details on this, so it's going to be super vague, but whatever coffee beans these were, some kind of like marsupial eats them and then poops them out and then they gather them up and somehow that process takes away the acidity of the coffee. So that's the coffee I got my husband for his birthday. Wow. That's the definition of coffee snobbery, I think right there. Wow. That's to even know that's a thing. And... I think I like saw, you know, one of those like random ads for it. And I was, I was like, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. So that's the coffee that I got for him. So 
Bourbon coffee sounds wow. much better. Much better. You know, a lot of a lot mean, of people turn to coffee for the BMs, you know, in the morning. But this is yeah. pre BM yeah, coffee right. for yeah. your. There's a there's a slogan in there somewhere. Yeah, I maybe wow. it's very smooth. It wasn't very <laughs> nice. Maybe they taste similar. I don't know the bourbon and the monkey. Maybe oh, they kind of somehow no. meet the, the, on the flavor scale. They kind of meet somewhere on the same part of the spectrum. I don't know, but oh, um, that's wow. Yeah. I also well, learned yeah. something today. <laughs> My husband's much nicer than me too when it comes to gift giving. Cause for Christmas, he gifted me tickets to wicked. Um, the actual play, not the movie that's not out yet. Um, so we did that last night actually mm. in downtown Detroit. Um, and that was amazing. We were disagreeing on how many times we've seen it. He was saying two, I was seeing three, but I'm probably right though. So just putting that out there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, no, it was great. I love that, that play and, um, would see it 10 more times, um, Mm. if Mm. I could, but yeah, it was nice. We stayed downtown and just kind of had a nice little respite, um, post very post Christmas, gift. <laughs> mm. What about you, Davis? Nothing, anything new, nothing, nothing just new to report out? on. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just, <laughs> just at home with crying babies. And well, my wife is, I, I consider myself a crying baby as well. So she's the one that you need to pray for, but yeah, we have a house full of women. Now the estrogen is on tap. Even the dog is a girl. So I'm outnumbered a lot and we are in the throes of newborn life. Trying to remember mm. that we're not supposed to wish away the days, but mm-hmm. maybe just That's wishing right. away the sleepless day, just so we sleep a little bit more would be would be nice. Yeah. And I've been craving, you know, I'm just kind of one of those extroverts that needs people, and I've been craving getting around adults and having conversations again. But now that I'm here with you both, I'm realizing it's kind of the same. We're still just talking about bowel movements. And God, it's like, this is what I talk about with my toddler, but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the wheel in the sky keeps on Can't turning. get away from it. I love it. Well, uh, let's, let's look at what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be hanging out in 2 Samuel, uh, the middle of chapter one there. This is going to be David's lament for Saul and uh, Jonathan. From there, we're going to talk about Psalm 144 towards the end of the Psalter there. And then continuing to march through Ephesians, we're going to look at verses 15 to 23 when Paul's praying for the church there in uh, Turkey or uh, Asia Minor back then is what it was referred to as. And then our but what about section is continuing in Luke 17, some dense passages there in Luke 17, rehashing uh, a lot of the Old Testament, uh, or at least some of the stories that make you quake in your boots in the Old Testament, and then a real tricksy cliffhanger from Jesus at the end of that, talking about vultures. So Stay tuned mm-hmm. to see what the heck we're talking about there and why we chose it as a but what about section. Uh, but to begin, let's take a look at 2 Samuel 1, specifically verses 17 to 27, And this is where you're going to hear David, again, lamenting for both Saul and Jonathan in what I found one person called the most uh, potent uh, lament or eulogy that the world has ever created or known. So we have that to to live up to in describing Mm -hmm. what what is going on there. Uh, In all of world literature, this person said this is the most moving eulogy that we can find as David honors Saul right alongside his... Uh, son Jonathan. 
Uh, to locate us a little bit, I think it is helpful. First and Second Samuel have the risk of just kind of being one of those Old Testament narratives that were kind of like, oh yeah, there's a Goliath in there somewhere, and what else happens? Uh, but in First Samuel, you have uh, Samuel the prophet being anointed, and then about halfway or a quarter into the book, you have Samuel choosing, uh, based on the people's opinion, Saul as king, and he's going to be king for uh, up until about chapter fifteen. Uh, when we meet this guy, David, who is one of the biggest deals in the Old Testament, Samuel is going to anoint David as king while Saul is still installed as king over Israel. And I know this is kind of Game of Thronesy, uh, but what happens for the next eight chapters is Saul actually trying to take David out because he's threatened by what God is doing through David. Mm. And you just have him pursuing him left, right, and center, trying to take him out um, because he's a threat to the throne. And yet in the midst of this, we see David regularly uh, dodging spears, uh, literally and metaphorically from Saul, and yet not retaliating. There is just this like really confusing, uh, unprotected, I'm trusting God, and I also love Saul and what God has done through Saul, and I'm not going to try and establish myself. And uh, it brings us all the way into the beginning of 2 Samuel 1, where Saul actually dies right before uh, the lament that we have for today. And it's, it's David receives the news from a messenger who says, I saw Saul dying and he actually asked me to take him out of his misery like a horse who was injured. And I've come to bring you this good news that, dude, you're king now. Saul's dead. And in the first reversal of the story, we see David actually, again, just so alarmed at the fact that this guy just um, harmed God's anointed king. And so he basically says, for what you did to Saul, now be, uh, be it done unto you. And this guy is put to death. And then David turns and writes this lament, uh, this deep heart gut-wrenching, I, I miss Saul and I'm sad that he's dead and I also miss Jonathan uh, his son. And so that's a, that's a little background to get us started. Again, this total reversal of the ways we normally think about establishing ourselves and our place in the world in this uh, triumphant story of David becoming king and yet lamenting his predecessor and not killing him. So what did you guys uh, find here in Second Samuel chapter 1? Well, yeah, I agreed. David's restraint is one of the biggest things I think I see in this book as well. Just the surprising, you know, unwillingness to take any kind of like vengeful fight, you know, or even like self-defense uh, back towards Saul. Uh, and these guys are arch enemies. And, and, and David's not going to say it, say it in that exact way, of course. You know, he's um, he has actually very positive things to say about Saul, even at the height of their you could call it a disagreement for, you know, it's kind of a benign way to say it, but it's uh, it's a tense fight. It's a chase, you know, really. Um, but his restraint, his uh, his patience, even when getting, you know, this um, bad advice ultimately or this advice from his friends, like this is the moment that, you know, God has given you Saul uh, in the cave in chapter 24, for example. Like he's you've, you've got him. You can kill him and kind of end this whole charade. He doesn't, you know, he rebukes his friends uh, for it. And um, it's almost to the point where you think this is not something you see in like life. You know, this is almost impossible to do. 
uh, if you put yourself in David's shoes and think, have I ever actually done that or wanted to do that? Have I had that heart kind of posture towards people that are against me? And honestly, I don't know. You know, I, I, this isn't to say that by God's grace as Christians, this heart doesn't start to kind of shape within us. I think it does. But I think before that, we have to see a lot more Jesus in David than ourselves, you know, and to see that that Jesus, the Son of God, had this kind of scandalous, crazy restraint. Um, and and then, yeah, you see it in the eulogy that even here after death, David's not saying, okay, finally, I can talk bad about my enemy. He doesn't. Mm. He, even he even here, he's saying at, the, at this funeral um, to say that Saul uh, and and Jonathan are are being laid down and and they were loved and admired in life and in death they weren't parted. I'm looking at verse 23. Saul and Jonathan in life they were loved and admired. I think like again, uh his kindness and restraint towards Saul, his enemy, and to see Jesus's love for his enemies, us in that. But also um how Saul and Jonathan are being recognized here is in David's life Saul's the bad guy and Jonathan's kind of the good guy, the friend, and I think to mourn for both of them equally, I think uh, shows us that great gospel theology that, uh, and this kind of sounds like Ecclesiastes too, in a way, how the good and the bad are buried together. You know, it's not, a, it, there's there's something else that rules the universe rather than just rote morality. Uh, David here is mourning the good and the bad. You know, he he's laying them both next d- down next to each other and weeping for both of them. I think that in that, Jesus is, has that posture towards us. It's not he just loves us, you know, uh, not based on what we've done for him, but just because. And um, and it's crazy that he would, again, uh, treat them both this way kind of um, equally. If you know Jonathan's stories as well, Jonathan was an amazing friend to David, uh, even being Jonathan, being Saul's son, an amazing friend. Um, but I think you have, you have that wonderful gospel truth that the good and the bad are mourned for and loved equally. And in, in the gospel, we have that from, from our true king, our true David, Jesus Christ. And um, so we can kind of stop the fight, stop the, the chase ourselves, stop trying to, to win, you know, uh, to whatever it is, um, and to climb and, and ascend the mountain. We have a king who, um, who loves us equally no matter what. And uh, that's not a small thing. So. Yeah, I kind of saw, I definitely saw the same thing as you did, Chris. Um, I just thought it was so fascinating to see David's reaction to a death of his enemy. Like you guys gave the backstory, just it's no no small enemy that just died. Um, And it reminded me later on in the story when his son Absalom dies, he has the same reaction, which if you don't know the story, you're like, yeah, that tracks because it's his son. But at this time, um, when he dies, he was David's enemy. He had driven him out of Jerusalem. Um, David had lost the throne. Um, but then Absalom is killed and David hears and he just, he laments, he mourns. Um, and people are kind of thrown off by his reaction because like I said, at that time, Absalom was his enemy. Um, and I find it's, striking because in another part of the story, um, with another death, the death of uh, David and Bathsheba's first son, um, he has a very different reaction. Uh, This son was kind of conceived and born into sin. If you know the story, Um, David had sent Bathsheba's husband away, basically murdering him, um, not, not by his own hand, but by his his heart Mm -hmm. and his deeds. Um, And there was the adultery with Bathsheba that uh, 
landed the son, and then very soon after he was born, the son died. While the son was sick, David was in the temple, face down, just praying for his son to survive. But then as soon as he hears that his son has died, um, he gets up and he goes and worships God, and then he has a meal. Um, And I feel like we have to remember that these reactions, they seem very backwards, but the the Bible is not a character uh, study on David. Um, And so we have to kind of think of what this means theologically for us. Why do these reactions, why are they important? Um, And what do they mean for our relationship with God? And Chris, you kind of touched on this, just, you know, who are God's enemies? At the end of the day, like we are his enemies. We are the usurpers. We are the people who rebel against the throne of God. And so what this means is it's actually really good news that this is how he reacts to the death of his enemies. Um, It's not something he looks for. He actively goes against it, actually, like you guys were saying, Um, and then, yeah, we have this weird story where he he doesn't treat the death of his son at the same the same way. Um, and I think this is just throwing us ahead to the cross where I feel like David's time in the temple with his his son um, gives very like Garden of Gethsemane vibes where Jesus in, is in the garden, just distressed about what's coming Um And then we kind of have this reversal when he's on the cross. He's actually mourning for the people who put him there, um, where he's, Father, forgive them that they they don't know what they're doing. Um, And it's just this this great cosmic reversal, right, Um, where now the enemies will survive and the God of life will die in our place. Um, But then we get to then go get up and we get to worship and we get to eat with God um, after that. And I just, I just think being able to kind of see these reactions in the, in the whole theological light just gives us such a beautiful story and picture of, of how God actively pursues us um, as his enemies. And then ultimately how he kind of took on the death so that we might live. That's a good transition to Psalm 144 because it was penned by David and it has a lot of these same themes of an enemy rising up against him and then finding the ability to trust God in the midst of circumstances that would otherwise lead to self-protection. And in that trust, there is somewhat of a victory that comes about in uh, the way that only God can deliver, which uh, looks like what's what's our part in the midst of God's deliverance? It looks like a song, which uh, ordinarily is a pretty bad military strategy. Uh, But you see this even right (laughs) out of the gates uh, in the beginning of the psalm. It says, praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. And and just pause there on a second on on the first verse. This is easy to um, think that just the Hebrew kind of parallelism, this is when a psalm often just repeats itself with just different language. Uh, might sound like that's what's happening with that second line, my fingers for battle. Uh, But if you double click on that, it's like, that's, that's not usually our, our, the way we normally think about going into battle. It's like, what are my fingers going to be able to do in the midst of this hand-to-hand combat? Um, And it's because he's talking about playing an instrument, which is where he's going to say is later in the verse, I think it's in, uh, let's see, verse nine, I will sing a new song to you, my God, on the 10 string lyre, I will make music to you. Here's where we're seeing the military strategy, which seems a little, again, bizarre in the midst of a battlefield. Um, I thought of this in light of, you guys watched that quarterback series that came out on Netflix, uh, I don't know, a year ago, before the last season. 
Um, I think Kirk Cousins went up in everybody's book by watching just who this guy was and how he operates. And he was having the season maybe of his, of his, for sure of his career, uh, with the Vikings taking, making them a team that actually competed. Uh, it's hard to do that. If you're a Minnesota Vikings fan, <laughs> we are sufferers together, but he, here he is in the midst of that. And you're seeing behind the scenes of like, what was he thinking about? What was going through mm-hmm. with the, through his head? And you're just kind of in his mental world with him. And then he uh, loses that first game of the playoffs after this incredible season. And it was just this biggest letdown uh, for his team and for his uh, fans. And and the cameras follow him home that same night of uh, the playoff loss. And they follow him into his kid's bedroom. And he is all of a sudden just becomes a dad putting his kids to bed. And he does something remarkable. It's the most powerful scene in all of the quarterback series he just sings to them. Uh, I think it was on Christ, the solid rock I stand. And it was this Psalm 144, like in the midst of the trouble. And I mean, you just think of what that guy's going through mentally in that moment, like the biggest moment of his career. And it was just a total fumble, uh, <laughs> pun unintended, but working quite well. Uh, and what's he do? You know, does he sulk and just go, and maybe you and I are, are prone to do that. I know I am. I'm just prone to just replay in my mind. Like, why mm-hmm. did I do that? And, and instead you see him, uh, in a very Christ-like manner, turning to somebody else and leading them in song in the midst of trials and new tribulations, uh, to remind us that God really is our rock. God really is our refuge. And there's such a potent power in the midst of the battlefield of life, to just pick up the the 10-stringed instrument, uh, even if you can't play it, and just sing uh, a God a new song. What else are you guys seeing here in Psalm 144? Yeah, I like that, Davis. And I, it's uh, verse 5 stuck out to me too, um, some similar themes. But um, the idea of parting the heavens, so um, not new language for David. Like when he's asking for God's help, a lot of times he'll ask God to come down which I think there's a lot, lot of great imagery there as well about God's descent, which we um, like that idea at Red Tree a lot, just the idea of directionality when it comes to theology and it comes to gospel truth is like, we don't go up, God comes down. But this idea of parting the heavens, it reminded me a lot of Jesus's baptism, actually, where it says the heavens were torn open in Mark 1 and this voice came out from heaven, you know, and spoke to Jesus and about being pleased with him and the spirit kind of descended like a dove uh, it says, and I think that idea of it says tearing there, I think it's a uh, little, little um, less visceral of language here in the psalm, but I think it's the same idea that heaven's not just like, you know, being pulled back kind of like a, a curtain or like a cover, uh, but it's actually more like the cover was was torn or parted uh, in, in two different pieces. I think there's some suffering language here uh, that that is being conveyed. And um I was actually just recently telling my church this through a sermon, um, and I'll share it here too. But I don't know if you guys remember the Mr. Rogers thing. Um, he would say a lot where he would say, when tragedy strikes, look for the helpers. And I think it was his mom who first kind of encouraged him with that. Like when there's something really, really bad and stressful and uh, going on in your life or the world, especially the world when it's kind of this public thing. Look for those who rise up to help. And I think actually Mr. Rogers made a, um, a like a public address after 9-11 that he, he mentioned this. Um, but anyway, uh, I like to use the template of that, though, in theology sometimes when I teach. Uh, and, to, and that is just to say when things are hard in the Bible or when it's confusing or kind of foggy, look for the sufferer. Look for the thing that's suffering. Uh, look for the suffering language. And 
And I think that's just good Bible. I think Jesus cares a lot about that. The apostles do. But you see Jesus say, say this in Luke 24, right after he rises from the dead and opens the Bible for a couple of disciples. He, he looks not just for himself and helps them see him in the story, but specifically his sufferings. And I think that's what you have here. I think in, in this story, David is asking for God's help, but he's saying, part the heavens, may, may the heavens suffer, and then through that, or in the wake of that suffering, come and rescue me. And that's how, that's the trajectory of the whole story, right? Is that God is going to incur the suffering. Heaven itself will somehow be dealt a blow or will take a bullet or will send this ultimate, you know, envoy or ultimate messenger, ultimate suffering servant to be the one to suffer at our place. And, you know, so I, so I see, I, I see drawing a line right from Psalm 144 here through the baptism of Jesus right to the cross where Jesus's body will be parted. It will be torn open. And the, and then you also see that imagery with the, the, the um, veil and the temple right at the moment of Jesus saying it's finished and giving his last breath, that veil in the temple was torn. It says in Hebrews, I think Hebrews 10 or uh, somewhere in there says that is his flesh. So the, the veil was actually the, the, the flesh of Christ itself being torn so we can have access to God. So a lot of layered imagery there, but I think the Bible invites us to draw a line between all these things and, and to see the cross as kind of the pinnacle or the ultimate moment where, you know, heaven's own son will be parted or torn open. And, and that's the means of God's rescue uh, for us sinners who are in, in distress and in despair and in need of ultimate help from death, our biggest problem. I love that. And I, I feel like David always does such a good do job at describing what he needs rescuing from. Often it's like, rescue me from my enemies who are encamping around me. Um, and so even here, it, he actually repeats it twice, the same thing, which I feel like is always like a little flag that the Bible gives us. Like, wait, just just circle back, circle back. Um and he says in 7 and 8, and then again in 11, he says, Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. Um, I just think it's really poignant to just think about needing rescue for things that are drawing us away from the truth of the gospel um, and how those ultimately are more um dangerous to us than things that are going to harm our body, the things that are going to draw us away from the truth of Christ. Um, and it's really important to just kind of see that he is calling for rescue and deliverance, um, not like give me better tools to deal with this, make, make it so I can do this better. Um, he's just calling for full out delivery, like get me out of here because I can't, I can't withstand this. Um, and he does it just like you said, Chris, Chris, I love that imagery of the tearing. Um, and we also have a few other things that he, David's calling on God to bow your heavens and stretch out your hand from on high. And I think that is very mm. cruciform imagery because ultimately, like you said, how he saved us, how he delivered us um, from things that would draw us away from him is by stretching out his hands on the cross and then bowing his head, like it says in the gospels and giving up his spirit. Um, and I think it's just such a re role reversal, right? Because we think God's going to come thundering in and just decimate his enemies when in fact he decimates himself in the place of his enemies, just like we were just saying with, with David, um, I just, I, I just think it's so striking, um, 
just how how poignant that um, image is. Mm. Well, let's turn to Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. I think in the midst of the world sending us uh, three messages, you could kind of boil them down to, which is to know yourself or look within, uh, build or maximize your riches in your estate, right? Like how big of a, a life can you ultimately live? And then realize your potential, uh, right? Or like fake it till you make it at least until you realize your potential. Uh, in the midst of those messages from the world here in Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23, we're going to hear Paul basically say the opposite of all three of those. Uh, he's going to say, <laughs> in effect, I'm praying uh, for this church to know God better and to know his riches and how those riches traffic in your everyday life, how that intersects with your everyday life. The gospel has uh, something to say to every category of your existence. Bank on these riches and then ultimately to know his power and his power to save uh, those around you. So know God better, know his riches, and to know his power are ultimately what he's going to be praying for for this church. He says in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he elaborates a little bit on that power in the following verses. But what did you guys notice here in Ephesians <clears throat> 1 for the end of the chapter? I noticed, uh, and you read it, Davis, but verse 16, the idea of, you know, Paul not stopping giving thanks for his churches and definitely, again, something we see in his other letters as well. I think um, it's easy for me, I know, just to kind of read over that or kind of relegate it to the side as just, you know, this is something Christians should do. We should just be thankful all the time and um, and then not think a lot more about it, you know. Um, but I think like on a theological level, um, it's pretty striking, actually, that Paul um, has this way of living, not because of some kind of high, pious standard, but because he's a man of grace, I think Thanksgiving is a mark of being moved by holistic grace in your life. Uh, when when you believe that God has done everything and that you have brought nothing to the table at all and you've come with empty hands and a, as Romans 3 says, a closed mouth because you have no defense before God. Um, and when you receive the great gift of salvation, we just start to be thankful for more. And ultimately, salvation, of course, and the person and work of Jesus and that loving restraint we talked about that we see in David in the Old Testament that, that Jesus um, amplifies. But we also see it in other things, just the small things of life, like good meals and um, friendships and marriages and uh, camping trips and vacations and sunrises and, uh, and you name it, anything, season change and whatever it is that we enjoy experiencing in this life. Like we start to be thankful for those things because we know we haven't somehow, you know, uh, concocted them ourselves or brought them into, um, into life ourselves. And that includes our good works. And that, that I think is, you know, what we're inclined to, the inner Pharisee uh, or, you know, law-bent spiritual, spiritual person we are inside our hearts is we tend to move from gospel to law uh, or, or move from grace to works. And we draw a line between those things as though the former is about Jesus doing something for us and the latter is about us showing our devotion to God. and But when we do that, we become less thankful because we live as though the works are products of our piousness, uh, of our piety, of our religion, 
um, and our working out of salvation. And um, and I think Paul is not living that way, or certainly not teaching that way. But he's not. He's also saying, kind of, you know, by a way of almost almost showing it, that my life is one of holistic grace. That my conversion and my whole journey of faith is completely by the hand of God, and that includes all the good that comes from me. Uh, and uh, on whatever level, like it has to be from him because as he says in Galatians 2, different letter, but he says, I'm dead and it's Christ who is alive in me. And and he's the one that produces that fruit. And um, so, yeah, so again, grace to grace, you know, grace upon grace, as he says in the book of Romans, it's not grace as a foundation for something that we bring to God, but it's grace through and through. Uh, and a lifestyle of thanksgiving that credits him with everything, I think, is a is a, such a healthy expression of um, that deeper theology, you know, about all things salvation, justification and sanctification uh, include the whole part of the Christian life uh, being being a gift of of his grace. I love that. And I, I think I'm a big believer that that thankfulness um, just grows the more we understand the grace of God, but also our desperate need for it. Um, and I love, I, it's that dual nature of reading the Bible, right? Because you saw this and saw just our our need to have this gratefulness for everything that God has done. But I read it and um, Paul often kind of takes on this Christ type um way of speaking in his letters. Uh, we see it a lot in all of his letters, but here I feel like we're allowed to kind of overlay that filter on what crisis or what Paul is saying here. Um, and when he's saying, I do not cease to give thanks for you, I think we are allowed to, to think of Jesus continually giving thanks for us, which is very backwards, but it's true. And I feel like even just the passages that we've gone through today have kind of been leaning into that, that it doesn't make sense, but it is true. Um, and I think this is kind of the same track that Romans 8 was talking about when he was talking about how Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God, um, and it says, who indeed is interceding for us. And I think it's important to see that that is a present tense verb. Um, it's not he did intercede, he will maybe intercede, he did it once and that's done. Like he is continually at the right hand of God interceding for us. And I think that tracks right with this, that he is continually giving thanks for us, uh, which should be a pretty humbling thing, um, considering our great need for him. And, and the fact that he's giving thanks for us is just mind blowing. But I also think that then leans into us just like, oh, my gosh, that just leads to more gratefulness for his grace. Um, and I think it's pretty great because you read that and you're it's mind blowing. But then you read the rest of this passage talking about all of the power that had been given to Jesus um, through his death and resurrection. Um, and it's that same powerhouse, basically, that is at our side and giving thanks for us and interceding for us. Um, and I think that just that's just such powerful imagery uh, that Paul is giving us there. Yeah, I love the imagery. I think um, and, and seeing Christ behind these words, it, it fits with Paul's prayer of even like, hey, I, I'm just praying you know him more. I, I think you you can't know him enough. My, my mind jumps to uh, my favorite character in A Christmas Carol. He's kind of a, a smaller role, but it's the ghost of Christmas present. Every time I see a play or a rendition of this film uh, around Christmas, I'm always looking for how, how are they going to capture the ghost of Christmas present? Uh, he's my favorite because he always has the same line. Wh whoever is putting on the show, he always says, 
come in and know me more. And the best renditions of him have him as this really jolly Santa-like figure whose laughter just fills the room. And he's usually got bells that are behind that laughter, but it's the sound that inspires wonder and like a sense of awe and attraction. And uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is always like drawn to him, but terrified at the same time. Um, But I think there is an element that um, our greatest need right now in the midst of our dark, hard, troublesome lives is continually what Paul's writing about here in Ephesians 1, which is we need to come in and, and know him more. We need to see his laughter take on the darkest parts of our life and watch it uh, be overwhelmed like a tidal wave of gladness. Um, maybe the thing we need right now in our life is not a bucket uh, more of money, but more God <laughs> and uh, and knowing him more. I mean, why not, right? Like there seems to be uh, an invitation from this New Testament letter to just hey, this, this is better even than what you see in Ghost of Christmas Present. This invitation from Jesus right now is to come in and know him more and to see him in light of all that he's done, uh, which is good news. Well, let's talk then about the coming of the kingdom of God. That's actually not a bad transition. There's, the question is, is posed to Jesus in Luke 17 by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus gives a very Jesus-y answer. Uh, by first kind of dodging the question with a description of the coming of the kingdom of God that isn't going to be like what is expected. It's not going to be an event like Taylor Swift on the screen at the Super Bowl that everybody's attention is directed to. And hey, I'm not a, I'm not a a, 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 a Swifty or a, or a hater. I'm a supporter. All right, uh, but there is a. <laughs> Uh, there is an element of like, oh, there's a, we need to see this thing. And Jesus is going, oh, the kingdom of God's not like that. The kingdom of God actually might look more like an everyday thing, like a elderly couple showing up after church to sanitize the kid's room. You know, like there's just a, that, that doesn't turn the heads of a stadium, but it is a thing that mm-hmm. makes God uh, happy. And it looks like his kingdom, I think. Uh, but then the passage turns to the, him talking to the disciples And he uses lots of Old Testament references and big, scary stories. And this is why we wanted to include it in our But What About section. Uh, Because this is a time when we look at a passage in Scripture that seems to fly in the face of what we're describing grace to be based on what we see the gospel to be all about. And that is, it's so much more about Jesus and his directional movement to save and rescue than it is about us establishing ourselves as impressive in the world. And this is one of those sections that you could read one of two ways. One way is the ways that I think our natural-born legalistic selves read them, and it's filled with uh, warning and dread of uh, needing to perform at the level that these Old Testament quote-unquote heroes did not. Uh, So in this story, we have Noah and we have Lot and his wife, I believe, come up. And there's one way to read these stories and go, oh my gosh, I got to really step up to the plate here. The other way is the way that I think Jesus is regularly inviting us to read it, which is to say, these are not heroes in the Old Testament. These are humans. These people are just like you and me. And I need you to see the ways that it's all about Jesus and not about your performance as a hero. And so uh, before I say anything more about that, why don't don't Chris, why don't you walk us through? How how is he using these kind of Old Testament events and stories just to to maybe give us a better way than be a hero. Yeah, I like the way you put that. And I think um, it's it's the way Jesus uses the Old Testament here that I think becomes such a helpful, like interpretational 
you know, almost a signpost, you know, or kind of a, uh, an explanation of what was really going on. And so in, and just to link two of them together too, in different parts of salvation history. So you have Noah and the flood, and then you have Sodom and Gomorrah. So both part of Genesis, but there's a lot of time in between those stories. And so, uh, but then to say that they're kind of like, Jesus is saying, they're kind of like about me. They're about the days of the son of man. They were these stories that existed, uh, it actually in history, they really happened, but they were pointers. They, they were foreshadows of something much greater. And so then it invites us into the stories, uh, to look for that Christ figure or to look for other themes that seem to kind of orbit around the sun of what we might consider like the essence of new Testament theology. And like you were saying, Davis, Noah and Lot, who are mentioned by name, are not good individuals. You know, Hebrews 11 identifies them as men of faith, but that doesn't mean they were righteous by their works. We know they weren't, uh, but they did trust God. And so I think there's that kind of theme there as well that that draws us in as faith-filled New Testament Christians to remember that faith was always the means to uh, connection with God and to salvation and to being passed over by the wrath of God. It was never our, our works. And actually reading this afresh uh, this week, even just seeing the idea of Jesus saying, in the days of Noah and Lot, people were just eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building and marrying and being given in marriage. Like in one sense, that's meant, I think, to show imminence, you know, that Life's just going to be happening when Jesus comes back. And there's a warning there to be clinging to Christ is the only way to be saved. Uh, at the same time, those things are good things. There are at least morally neutral things, you know, just marrying and getting married and e- eating dinner and getting the kids ready for bed and going to work and building a Lego set with your kids or an actual skyscraper and everything in between. Those are good slash morally, morally neutral things, right? And so I think that in that is this reminder that it's not, you know, just in response to evil or good that God is doling out favor or bringing judgment, Uh, but it's just in the everyday. And um, you even see in verse 25, Jesus talking about his sufferings. I must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation before the days of the Son of Man, which is this future, you know, um, Noah-like or flood-like and fire-like return is coming. He's saying, first, I must suffer. And so that I think is the key. He's saying, I I need to suffer on a cross. And so then he's reading his story into these stories and saying um, that everything hinges on that. Everything hinges on Calvary. And so are you going to escape with and through my sufferings or just go back to your life? Um, And uh, good or bad things, just go back to your life. It doesn't matter because judgment is coming for those who aren't clinging to me and my sufferings. Uh, but a Passover, a great Passover, and a great escape, and a great boat, a great ark is being built um, for those who believe in me and who trust me um, with empty hands, again, and closed mouth, uh, not with their works, not with obedience to the law, but simply with uh, faith alone. I... I can't help but think that the disciples would have loved that answer uh, when, when they question what God or what Jesus meant in this this passage uh, near <laughs> near the end in verse thirty seven. Um, they ask him a question after he says all of this, um, and they say, "Where, Lord?" And I feel like that's the equivalent of like, "Wait, what?" Totally. So, who are we talking about? Uh, so, where is, it, is this location, or is this? Is this uh, 
substance? I don't quite understand. Plug it into my Google. Is this Maps? a where, no, a what, or a why? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and then Jesus gives them a really good answer, very thorough, very um, just you know level setting, and he says, "Where the corpse is, there the vultures will will gather." And then he moves on, <laughs> like, "Oh, all right, thank you." <laughs> Here's <death>. um, <laughs> And I, I kind of, when I was reading through this passage, that one was so just kind of out of left field. Like, what? wait, what What are you talking about? How does that answer any question that could have been presented after this uh, lesson? <laughs> um, so I started doing a little digging and I was very shocked um, to find almost that exact saying way back in Job in the Old Testament, um, right at the end of... Um, chapter 39. So in this part of Job, um, God is kind of coming at Job and just kind of talking about all of these great things within creation that Job just will never have a a chance at understanding. And it's kind of all meant to just be like, okay, like you don't understand the things of God. Um, Because Job was very upset. If you know the story of Job, he lost everything and he was very upset with God. He was very angry. And so this is part of God's response. And so in this chapter, he's kind of going from animal and an- to animal and just kind of how these animals, their strengths and how they live in this world that he created. And right at the end, he starts talking about um, eagles and hawks, which back in uh, Luke, there's actually I have a footnote when it says vultures and it says or eagles. Um, so I think this we can very easily connect these. And he's talking about just, you know, their power and how they mount up and make their nests on high. And right at the end, he says, his young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there is he. Um, So pretty much the same thing here. Um, And so what does that mean? I feel like that's still a little scary and shady, but I feel like um, what Jesus is saying is he, he's referring to himself, basically. Um, and just like these eagles and these hawks and these vultures, where the corpse, where Jesus's body is, we quite naturally gather. And I think you can see this in culture um, where a lot of our stories, a lot of our movies kind of have this savior type theme, um, even if it wasn't intended, like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. I know Lord of the Rings, I think, was pretty intentional in that. Um, But the Marvel Universe, kind of all of these stories that almost have this very Christ-like savior type um, story that plays out. And I think that's because we are, we are the vultures who gravitate towards the corpse of Christ because that is our story, whether we understand it or not. And I I love the placement of this in Job because right after it, Job, Job literally says, I lay my hand on my mouth. Like, you're right. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, And I think that that is okay. I feel like the disciples did this here, but I think we can do that too. Like the the love of God and our, our, the the gravity that he has on our souls is going to be outside of our understanding, but then we get to just rest in the knowledge that it is true and that we just as part of ourselves kind of are going to gravitate towards his death and his resurrection. Yeah. The, uh, you made me think the forward, peak climax of the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe is what? I am mm. Iron Man, right? Snap mm. the fingers and it's the ultimate sacrifice when he becomes a, a dead body. He becomes a corpse where there's a dead mm. body there. The vultures will be 
also, or there they will gather. Yeah, I do. I do think this is a tricksy kind of veiled Old Testament E type uh, phrase that that Jesus is using. And I, I do also love turning to those places, especially in commentaries, to see how people, because you, you get a huge lay your hermeneutical cards on the table when you come across stuff like this. Of like, hey, well, what do you think the Bible is actually about? Uh, because we'd say that the the devil's not in the details. The gospel's in the details. Uh, this is where we get a lot of what God is trying to say to us in these like obscure, like what, what is, it's meant to slow you down. And uh, after Jesus does die, after he does become a lifeless body, a corpse, when he's removed from the cross and rises again three days later, the church is trying to make sense of all of this, that this is the way God wanted to reveal himself. This is the loudest thing he wanted us to hear. And so we get the letters from Paul that are clarifying. This is what Jesus taught. This is what he did. And in 2 Corinthians 4, I believe it's verse 10, he talks about how, what, what is ministry ultimately? He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Uh, I take that to be a, a very close one-to-one reflection of what vultures are doing when they gather around a corpse. What are vultures doing? They're circling to gather to the, the corpse for a meal. This is where they get their sustenance. And the, the, the word that God has for us is, I came to feed you. How am I going to feed you? What's the message I have for you? It, it's my dead body. It's the fact that I died and rose again for you. And so, yeah, we're, we're eager to see this message play out in the lives of people. We carry around with us the dead body of Jesus so that Jesus's life might be had in all of life. And that, friends, is good news. And it reminds us that these rumors of grace really are true and that everything is just going to, we're going to be all right in the long run, all right? God knows what he's doing. Uh, carry around his method of salvation, his method of rescue. Where there is a dead body, we vultures will hang out. That's what we're trying to do here at Red Tree. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided by Dan Zeller and website support by Nolan Bauer. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, do consider dropping us a rating wherever you get your podcast to join us in giving away the always better news of God's grace. Thanks again for being with us. On Christ the Son.